The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. We continue to discuss the Spirit of Liturgy by Joseph Ratzinger. We actually have a uh, Two forms of it here. The uh, one probably you have, which is the uh, new preface and so on. It's the commemorative edition. And the one which I have, which is all marked up, which I want to use it. I'll get page numbers for both because some people may have the old one, some have the new one. Mm -hmm. But uh, the last session, we concluded the first part which is on the essence of the liturgy. And I mentioned how important that word essence was for Cardinal Ratzinger Paul Benedict. <clears throat> and there were three chapters. Chapter one, Liturgy and Life, where he shows liturgy is meant to be integrated in, or life, personal and social, integrated into liturgical worship of God. Two, Cosmos and History, where he shows that the liturgy is both historical, you know, remembrance of an event, but also cosmic, it covers all creation. And the third, from Old Testament to New, showing how the roots of the Catholic liturgy, Christian liturgy of our time, is rooted in the both the synagogue liturgy and the temple liturgy of the Jews. Very well organized. Uh, and now we jump into part two, time and space in liturgy. And uh, this is going to be a little didactic, different from most of our other books discussion, because this is a book which has been a lot to me. I've taught it many times. I've learned a lot of, a lot of things, and I think it's supremely important. Uh, so I may, you know, wander on and please interrupt or ask questions or make comments as you desire, but... Let's go to chapter one of part two, which I believe is on page 67 of your edition, page 53 of mine. And I'm just going to, you know, quote some things and go on and kind of get the skeletal outline of this chapter. We can discuss it. Uh, as a good teacher, and he was a wonderful teacher, he begins with a question to kind of stimulate reflection. Can there really be special holy places and holy times in a world of Christian faith? Skipping some lines. Is the whole world not now a sanctuary? You know, not now that Christ has sanctified the world? We need a church. Skipping some lines. End of the paragraph there. Can there be any other holy time than the time for practicing love of neighbor? Okay. Next paragraph. Whoever asks these questions, questions like these touches on a crucial dimension of the Christian understanding of worship, but overlooks something essential 
about the permanent limits of human existence in this world. Next page, third away down. The church fathers described the various statements of fulfillment, not just as a contrast between Old and New Testaments, but as the three steps of shadow, image, and reality in the church of the New Testament, the shadow has been scattered by the image. So he's talking about what, what time means, you know, what history means. And the fathers saw, you know, the Old Testament and prior to that as a shadow it would come. And then the, the fulfillment in Christ and the New Testament was the image. But then that still image is something more. That's the reality in heaven. It's important to have that, that threefold uh, dimension here. New paragraph at the bottom. This idea of the New Testament as the between time, an image between shadow and reality, gives liturgical theology a specific form. It becomes even clearer when we bear in mind the three levels. Now we've got three phases and three levels. Here again, we get a little bit of intersection of, of two, two schemes here. And the three levels on which Christian worship operates. The three levels make it what it is. There is a middle level, the strictly liturgical level, which is familiar to us all and is revealed in the words and actions of Jesus at the Last Supper. Okay, so that's, that's where we are. On the next page, 10 lines down, but this properly liturgical level does not stand on its own. It has meaning only in relation to something that really happens. The reality of this is it's not just an image of nothing, image of something. And the last paragraph on that page, in considering this foundation of reality that undergirds the Christian liturgy, we need to take account of another important matter. The crucifixion of Christ is death on the cross, and in another way, the act of his resurrection from the grave, which bestows incorruptibility on the corruptible, are historical events that happen just once and as such belong to the past. So here's what time. This happened in the past, right? The word semel, Latin, epoch, Greek, once for all, which the epistle of the Hebrews emphasized it as well vigorously in contrast to the multiple or repeated sacrifice in the Old Covenant is strictly applicable to them. And a few lines down. However, the exterior act of being crucified, that's historical, epoch one time, is accompanied by an interior act of self-giving. The body is given for you. So then down middle of the page, this giving on the part of the Lord in the passivity of being crucified draws the passion of human existence into the action of love. That's a beautiful expression, see? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The passion of accepting to be crucified, but as an act of self-giving by the man who is God, draws the passion of human existence into the action of love. And so it embraces all the dimensions of reality. Body, soul, spirit, logos, just as the pain of the body is drawn into the pathos of the mind and becomes the yes of obedience, so time is drawn into what reaches beyond time. So his bodily suffering, which is part of himself, basically draws the body into the soul, so to speak, as he says, and that act draws this historical act into Eternity.
The real interior act, though it does not exist without this exterior, transcends time. But since it comes from time, time can again and again be brought into it. I mean, that right there, you know, it transcends time, and through time can be brought into it. So every time we summon liturgy, we are entering into bringing our time back into that eternal moment when self-giving brings time into eternity. I mean, that's just... And may I ask a question? You may ask a question. Is, is one of the reasons why it transcends time because that the trinity of persons, that this exchange of self-giving is already happening eternally in the trinity, and then when the man Jesus enters human existence, now he's bringing that into human existence with him and then taking us into that back to the Father, right? It's almost like getting caught up into a tornado. That's right. It's <laughs> exactly right. And, and uh, <clears throat> uh, if it weren't for the Trinity, that the Father gives himself to the Son, and the Son returns to the Father, then the Son could not come in, into the world and give himself to the world and suffer and bring it back to the Father. So exactly, the whole thing is Trinitarian. So there's a, there's, there's, there is a, I love that the whole mystical aspect of this time, eternity, past, present, not yet is the phrase he uses, right? Overlooks the not yet. Um, so I, the, when, when we, in the liturgy, somehow or other, we are both taken back to the moment of Christ's crucifixion. We're taken up into some sort of participation in the Trinity and therefore in the church triumphant. Um, uh, and yet, it's still the not yet because we are not in the church triumphant and can't be fully in the church triumphant until we enter eternity following our deaths, God willing and please God. So there's, there's this sort of mystical kiss where we sort of we, we are touched by God uh, in the liturgy, it takes us into Him, into His eternity, but not in a way which is fully yet, or therefore and fully satisfactory. Uh, you know, it's it's necessary, but it's not satisfactory because it's not the fulfilment. It's uh, it's uh, almost like a hint or a, or a touch, um, which uh, is fleeting. Uh, from our perspective, right, as human persons, because we can't fully, we can't fully be, we, we can't fully feel, experience that we're in that eternal moment that liturgy takes us up into. Exactly, and that's what faith is. You know, faith is the recognition of things which are real, but we can't see or experience directly. And as Paul says in Colossians, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And we're already there, but it's not manifest. And until we die, as you say, we can fall out of that. Right. Now, that, that, that that's where we are. We are already through baptism and the Eucharist and liturgical celebrations. But it's not. It's not. What is it? It's not confirmed yet. It's not. If we stay there, we're fine. If we drop out, it's, it's like falling out of the waterfall. You know. And that's why the virtue. Sorry, please, Vivian. I was please. saying that's why the virtue of hope is so important to complete what faith begins, because we have to now persevere 
through the end, even though we're in this not yet place. And I was talking to someone recently doing a dissertation on the thought of Benedict Ratzinger, and he was talking about this not yet element to it. And then I said, oh, have you ever read the Jewish political philosopher, Eric Vogland, who spends a lot of time studying this in political philosophical movements that want to bring heaven to earth right now? They don't want to live in the not yet, right? Imminent eschatology. Correct. And this man who's doing this dissertation on the thought of Ratzinger Benedict said to me, oh, he read Vogland. I did not know that. So Vogland's expression is the metaxi of the in-between. <clears throat> and Rotzinger Benedict, it's it's this. Uh, he uses in between here on page sixty eight, and he also uses the not yet Joseph that you quoted. But it's the same reality that's being expressed, yeah, and that's yeah. why religious faith and hope is the protected against, if you will, pseudo political messianic movements that want to bring about this completion that we're waiting for here and now. Right. And, and the other thing I, I wanted to say is that we, that, we, that we have to be aware of the concrete aspects of this. In other words, that yes. it is not yet, uh, but we cannot actually get to the, the actual presence of Christ in the triumph of heaven without the sustenance, the real concrete sustenance the liturgy offers. So, you know, we, we're not going to have the strength. So I'm reminded being a literature person of Lembas, right, the, the life bread. In, in, in Middle Earth, in the Lord of the Rings, that we need this practical, physical uh, stroke, metaphysical substance to mm-hmm. actually allow us to not drop out, as Father said, to not fall off, to not fall away. Um, so it, there's something very concrete and nutritious and nourishing in a spiritual and, and therefore in a physical sense uh, in, in, in partaking of this eternal mystery. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. 
We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. And he refers here to the letter of Hebrews, which is very much priestly and liturgical. And one of the themes that is there continuously is endurance. You know, you're persecuted, hang on. You know, don't fall away. And, of course, all I do the liturgy is to help us not to fall away. That's right. On that next page, uh, which is 71 for you, the top, today, quotes, because that's used in Hebrews, embraces the whole time of the church. And so in the Christian liturgy, we not only receive something from the past, but become contemporaries with what lies at the foundation of that liturgy. Here is the real heart and true grandeur of the celebration of the Eucharist, which is more, much more, than a meal. Again, there, there's, a, there's a gentle critique here of certain you know, directions and themes and movements in the modern post-conciliar church. It's not just a meal. We're entering into something which is this eternal circulation with God. New paragraph. We said that there is first the level of the event of institution, and secondly, the liturgical making present, the real liturgical. So those are the two levels. Bottom of the page, about eight lines. This liturgy is founded on the passion endured by a man who, with his eye, reaches into the mystery of the living God himself by the man who is the Son. So it can never be a mere axial liturgica, liturgical action. Its origin also bears within it its future in the sense of representation by carrying sacrifice takes up into itself those who it represents. It is not external to them, but a shaping influence on them. Becoming contemporary with the Pasch of Christ and the liturgy of the church is also, in fact, an anthropological reality. The celebration is not just a rite, not just a liturgical game or play, you know, as, as Wardini had kind of characterized it. It is meant to be indeed a logike latreia, the log logicizing of my existence, the logike, as I said, I think before, from logos means logos-like. Latreia means worship. My interior contemporaneity with the self-giving of Christ. So, historical act by his divine human presence becomes an act of self-giving, becomes a time-transcendent act. Therefore, when we participate in the representation of that act, we end up in that original act, and also in the time transcending, you know, eternal sacrifice. Can, can I, mean, I can I ask a question? Because it just struck me, and I, I it might it might even be a stupid question. So, um, let, me take, 
into the contemporaneity of uh, the self-giving act of, of, of our Lord on the cross, all right? So we are, we are lifted up by him through his sacrifice for us. To what extent are we also, however, nailing him to the cross? I mean, to what extent are we present there as sinners and not merely as those being saved from sin in the liturgy? Well, I mean, we are sinners being taken up into his suffering for our sins. But it's like, so like the uh, confitio, uh, you know, where, where we confess our unworthiness and we confess the fact that we are those who are responsible for his being crucified. In some sense, we are there as the culprits who nailed him to the cross, as well as the people who are being saved from ourselves by him. That's right, and that's why confession is such an important sacrament, to recognize that and to let him purify us so we can proceed more fully. But I like to think of us as Mary Magdalene. She was at the cross, one of the three Marys at the cross, right? And what consolation she gave to him because she was there as a sinner who repented. And that's, that's who we are. Yeah, very good. Mm -hmm. Also to think about our very rejection of God, which brings about his death, now becomes in God's hands the very means of our salvation. I mean, that, that you, can't, you can't outrun God, okay? Somehow, no matter what you try to do, in rejecting, refusing, somehow it's going to be used as by him as an instrument to bring you back. Uh, I, I like the fact that, you know, it's the mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, the domine non sum dignus, followed by the elevation, right? Which to me is, we've been lifted up in the resurrection almost in spite of ourselves, right? Now, we obviously we have to cooperate in terms of being, being penitent, but, you know, it's his gift to us that lifts and us up. And even a step further on page 72 here, right where Father left off, the very next words, his self-giving is, is meant to become mine. In other words, not only is what we've done to him being used as the instrument to save us, but he's also ha asking us to participate in that by doing what he does. We now are to give ourselves in the same way. Ah. Uh. So we're also not just nailing it to the cross and being lifted up onto it by him, we're also taking it up. Yes. And what you talked about is Joseph in our own sinfulness. <clears throat> I mean, there's a great resurgence of the uh, devotion to the divine mercy. We've got the divine mercy chaplain and we've got this and so on, which I think is wonderful. At the same time, uh, I went through the you know, the, the mass for a normal Sunday. And we asked for mercy over 37 times in the mass. That's just, I think it's about 30 times. In, but you say, Lord have mercy. Lord, there, that, there's six times right there. And the Agnus Dei, that's, that's two times more. And, and all through the canon, you have this desire for God to be merciful to us because we're sinners. And then, of course, you've got the colics and sometimes the readings. So... You know, the entire Mass is this beautiful uh, combination of our recognizing ourselves as sinners, asking for forgiveness, begging for his mercy, at the same time realizing that even as sinners, we can be united with him as repentant sinners, and 
offer ourselves with him back to the Father. So on the next page, 70. Oh, wait. oh go ahead. Well, this part about that's the not that's yet. That's a big answer. Yeah, that's a big one. Okay. And that means this is a big point. The sacrifice, this is also on 72 down toward the end. That's why I stopped, Father, before going Very to the next good. page. This sacrifice is only complete when the world has become the place of love, as St. Augustine saw in his city of God. So how is the world becoming a place of love? By our now giving ourselves in the same way he's given to us. And this is going to have to continue on in perseverance and hope until all reality, all the world becomes a place of love. We don't know when that is, I know. but we got to hold on till it happens it'll and be, be part of it. It'll be on the last day. On the last day. Consummation, because just as Christ did this for us, in the sense we were subsumed in him as he died and rose. But at the same time, most of the world was not aware of that. And yet he was doing it for them. So we as his disciples brought into his life are doing that for the others, even though they may not know, and even though the place of love may not extend in an external manifested way, you know, fully, it's not going to for sure, uh, but that will be the source of it becoming a place of love when he finally comes, yeah. The consummation, basically. Consummation, uh, yeah. yeah. Page 73 in the middle. And now the challenge is to allow ourselves to be taken up into his being for mankind. Just what, what I said. you just said. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Maybe I was influenced by this or something. So let ourselves be embraced by his open arms, which draw us to himself. He, the Holy One, hallows us with the holiness that none of us could ever give ourselves. We are incorporated into the great historical process by which the world moves towards the fulfillment of God being all in all. In this sense, what at first seems like the moral dimension is at the same time the eschatological dynamism of liturgy. The moral, yeah. Man, you know, you want to unwind everything. I mean, you want, but what better thing could you do with your life than be part of God transforming the world into a place of love by his sharing himself with us so we can share ourselves with him? I mean, is there anything else worth doing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. We can share ourselves with him and also thereby with each other. Yes. Right? We can love our neighbor only because he loves us and we are taken up willingly into his love. And it's only through that power we can then love our neighbor. Correct. Because if I were just relying on myself to love my neighbor, as my auntie used to say, Vivian, you can't give from an empty basket. <laughs> Who's going to fill the basket? Well, I can't. Well, you know, sometimes I'm asked, you know, because it is somewhat unusual. In some, I mean, well, do you see Mass every day, Father? I says, only when the sun rises. <laughs> I mean, if God's going to give me a new day, I'm going to give him the sacrifice of the Mass, you know? So, page 74. By six lines down. In the first stage of the eternal, the eternal is body and what is once for all. The second stage is the entry of the eternal into our present moment in liturgical action. And the third stage is the desire of the eternal to take hold of the worshiper's life and ultimately of all historical reality. So you got the 
historical act, our participation in it, the liturgy, and then the desire of the eternal to take hold of the worshiper's life, ultimately of all historical reality. Mm -hmm. Bottom page, I don't know, 10 lines up. Now, if we put the two three-part processes together, the historical and the liturgical, it becomes clear that the liturgy gives precise expression to this historical situation. It expresses the betweenness of the time of images in which we now find ourselves. The new paragraph there. In so saying, we finally discover the answer to the question which we, with which we started. After the tearing of the temple curtain and the opening up of the heart of God and the pierced heart of the crucified, do we still need sacred space, sacred time, meaning symbols? Yes, we do need them, precisely so that through this image, through the sign, we learn to see the openness of heaven. I mean, you know. Now, Father, if I can ask you to, to uh, elaborate, because there's a mystery here which I, I think is obviously very important that I think we need to grasp. This idea of um, we being in the not yet, the in-between, uh, the place of image between the place of shadow and the place of reality. So we have these three, three uh, stages of, yeah. of, of, of reality that um, in our relationship with eternity with God, the shadow, which is before Christ, as I understand it, the image, which is where we are, and then the reality, which is heaven. But can you, yeah. understand, can you explain why the word image and why the word shadow? I mean, reality, obviously, is the eternal presence, the beatific vision. <coughs> I can get that, but but why shadow for before Christ? Why image for where we are, the church militant or whatever word, phrase you want to use? Why shadow? Why image? Right, because the shadow was the preparation for the historical presence of Christ. The image is when Christ, who is God, yet we never grasp fully God and, and who God is becomes present in our lives in a veiled way, in a sense. He unveils the, the, the Father and the Spirit, but he also conceals them because they're mysterious. The, the reality is when we see we see what we really are. So we're, we're in that image time. Within that image time, you've got a historical event, which is the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. But because that historical event is actually the self-giving of the Son into, into time, he draws eternity into time, and then we, by participating in that in a later time, we're now we're still in the image, but we are going back to the historical moment when crucifixion was took place, and because that became time transcendent, we're actually drawn back there. So we're still in the image, but we're in the image. We're one with Christ, who's in the image, who is preparing us for. The unveiling which will be heaven and, and reality. I'm not sure if that answers your question. Or not, yeah, but... no, I think it does. Uh, but maybe if, if I can try to re-articulate and see if I've got it right or wrong, <laughs> how much the shadow has fallen between your words and my comprehension of them. Um, so, so the shadow is like such, such as in a foreshadowing of what's what's to come. So that the the Old Testament, the old law, prefiguring, foreshadowing, pointing towards the fulfilment. Uh, in, in time uh, of Christ, which is then imaged forth in in the incarnation. So that's the image of God 
in his fullness, in his perfection, as in, you know, who's the perfect man? We have Imago Dei, right? But who's Imago Dei uppercase? Uh, Jesus Christ. That's the image. And then uh, the reality is when we no longer just see the, the image, uh, you know, through a glass darkly, but we actually see him mm-hmm. in who he is, not imaged forth, but in his entirety, integrity, fullness. Is is that it? I'm just trying to get my head around it. Yeah, that, that shadow image reality. That's right. And another okay. way uh, it makes sense to me is that notice how in the old law, they weren't allowed to have any images. They're literally in the shadow. They're asked to believe something they can't see or look at or even try to represent in any way whatsoever. And then Jesus comes and he is the image. Now we have something to look at. We can see Jesus. And that's why the church is permitted to make images now of Jesus because he's the image of the father that we're permitted to see. But he's still only an image of the father. Like you just said, we're seeing through the glass darkly as St. Paul said, then we will see face to face. Everything that stands in the way now will be removed. So we are in the age of the image. That's exactly right. Until we have faces. Until we have faces. There's Lewis playing with that. Wow, that's right. Yes, indeed. Until we have faces, right? Yeah. All right, well, chapter two, sacred places. Should we wait? We're, we're never... This is this is almost all underlined. We, we have to wait for that one. So let's wait till next time. Next time we'll start with chapter two. Thanks, everybody. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. <laughs>